This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at drobo.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, Getty and Time.com are now giving away images, angry villagers chase Google out of town, and celebrity wedding photographer Robert Evans talks about his path to success. All that and much more coming your way next on episode number 84 of This Week in Photography. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. Today on the show are the usual suspects, myself, Frederick Van Johnson, uh, Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. Hello. We've yep. got uh, Steve Simon coming from the far right coast. Hey, Steve. I am here. Thanks. Mr. Ron Brinkman coming from somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Hey, Ron. That's correct. Up in Seattle. And Aaron Mailer, the uh, man behind the curtains. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. And today's special guest, which we will uh, insert into the feed into the show a little bit later, is a uh, wedding photographer, celebrity wedding photographer, Robert Evans. Really good conversation with him. Lots to learn from people who are actually in the mix, making money from photography. Uh, Alex, what's the uh, what's the, the linking contest that we have going on and have had going on for a while? The ongoing linking contest at twipphoto.com is, uh, is of course, going on. You can win three of Scott's 88 Secrets books and uh, a free one-year premium subscription to lynda.com. Get all the details at twipphoto.com um, on how you can do that and make sure to set those links up. You can also, uh, there's also, of course, Scott's Aperture Nature Photography Contest. Uh, and it's offering over $3,500 worth of prizes for each photographer uh, who wins. Um, so definitely check that out. You can find out all the information at twipphoto.com. Excellent. Hey, and we've got some really big news on the Twip side of this. And I teased this a little bit in on Twitter yesterday. But what, uh, Alex, you want to reveal to the Twip audience, to the Twip army, what uh, what we're doing big with the show? Oh, we- We've been we've been talking about the fact that we've been playing with Squarespace a little bit here and there, and uh, we are our playing has turned out to uh, create a new blog uh, for Twip. So um, so we're going to now we're going to continue to be doing a lot of stuff with Scott and Twip Photo. Uh, all of that's going to continue, but we're going to create something that that we can kind of play around with uh, here as well. And so uh, this beta is Twip Log. That's Twip. L-O-G dot com. Uh, and we, uh, we just actually put this together in Squarespace and, um, and we're still playing with it. Now, the great thing is, of course, is that we're going to be able, it's pretty malleable and easy for us to move stuff around. So what we want people to do is go up, take a look at it and tell us what they think. Um, you know, do you like what you see? What, what, what should we add? What should we take away? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things we're going to be playing with over probably the next four to six weeks. So, uh, you know, and uh, as we find our way to, um, you know, to a kind of a final resting point. And, and the great thing, of course, about the blog and the great thing about Squarespace is that we can, it'll constantly be evolving without too much trouble. So once again, uh, people can go up to twiplog.com and that's where we're going to start putting the show notes. Uh, that's where you, you're going to be able to submit uh, listener questions. Uh, and eventually that's where we're going to have forums and, and so on and so forth. So uh, it, it should be a lot of fun. So twiplog.com. Yeah. And it just, and, and just say a, as, go ahead, go ahead, Ron. I was going to say, as, as part of that, we have a, a renewed commitment from all of us to be more active in some of the uh, comment threads after the shows, too. Right, guys? Yes, we're going to be cracking the whip. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. I, I'm going to be, uh, I guess, I don't know who's going to crack the whip. Someone's, we're going to crack the whip. I was going to say, 
uh, yeah, like well, well, we will all crack our own rip whips and yeah, <laughs> make sure that we're <laughs> so anyway, so self, that's, self cracking. That's weird. Yeah, yeah I drove that in the ditch. So let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to echo that. You know, the 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 fact that the blog is we actually have a place where people can go to find out everything about the show and, and, and subscribe to it and all that stuff is huge. And B, the fact that we are calling it a beta means that your comments, TWIP listeners, uh, can affect the course of this thing. So help us. Well, especially make, in the first help, six help. weeks, we're going to be, yeah. there's going to be, it's going to be soft ground. We can change it. We can move it around. It's going to be easy for us to do that. And and what you should also know is not to get too attached to anything. We're going to be changing. We could, we, we could theoretically change everything in it over the next six weeks as we're, as we start to, uh, start to play with this. One thing that will be a little distinct about Twiplog is that it'll be extremely show focused. So, uh, you know, the posts that you see will be either preparation or follow up, uh, preparation to the next show or follow up from the last show. Um, so it, there, it, you know, it's, um, that's kind of how a lot of the, the focus of what's going on in Twiplog is going to, going to show up. Be a way to keep the conversation going around the show too, yeah. about each episode. Yeah. Enough about the the Twip log. Hey, uh, Nikon has some news. They released some cu- a couple of updates to some of their software. View NX and Nikon Capture NX too. Now, Steve, I know you're a shooter, a Nikon shooter. Are you using uh, anything out of the Nikon suite of software? Or are you doing everything in Aperture? Fred, uh, yeah, I'm a big Nikon guy, but uh, I'm an Aperture man, and I've been using Aperture exclusively. Um, I, I, I plan on, on, on experimenting a little more, widening my horizons, because I hear some amazing things about uh, uh, the software, and I know that you know, if you want to maximize your raw files, you certainly want to look at uh, the, the Nikon software. But uh, personally, I haven't, I haven't played with it yet. Hey, Ron, the... Uh you know we've got we've got Lightroom from Adobe. We've got Aperture from Apple, and these these pieces of software that come from the camera manufacturers like Nikon and Canon. What can they do because they own the hardware that the the external software companies can't do? Do you get do you know? Uh, you know it it kind of depends on how open they are and or how much reverse engineering has been done by companies like Adobe or, or Apple to figure out how the what's contained in the raw file. But these days, I think the raw information is pretty well understood. So I don't think there's really a whole lot that they can do that can't be done by a third party, which is kind of the way you want it. You know, you don't, once you have this kind of closed system, you're sort of relying on one manufacturer to do everything for you. And I, I much prefer a scenario where I can choose some third-party application to deal with, you know, what I consider my data uh, and not have it locked up. And, you know, the other thing is that I think a lot of these companies, like some of the NX software from Nikon, is starting to become available as plugins for these packages, too. So hopefully it's it's a wide-open field. Yeah. Well, one thing that... One thing that I uh, I have when I had a Nikon, uh, one of the things that I used the Nikon software for is that because they own the the lenses and the and the software, the uh, the the distortion filters uh, within the software were extremely accurate. Uh, I I shot a lot with a ten millimeter um, uh, fisheye and uh, the ten point five, I guess, and it would when you threw it into the into the Nikon software, it would dewarp it perfectly perfectly and it was and it would do it as a batch and so when i was shooting lots of hdrs that way i would just throw it in and just process it and and it was there was no figuring out there was no dialing in there was no test just that you told it what lens you had 
and it popped right out. So that I think that is one of the advantages. There are other ways to do yeah, but it. There's, Those are I the was going to say that there are there are plugins, or, uh, and there's certainly oh, what's the name of that company that does that really high end suite that includes a lot of uh, lens dewarping. It's a third party piece of software, and it they've done the same thing. You know, they've gone through and, and explicitly mapped the distortions you get on these different lenses from the major manufacturers. Right. When you, when you look at uh, Nikon, they seem to have really put a lot of effort into the software side of things compared to a lot of uh, camera manufacturers. So, um, you know, it stands to reason if you want to maximize the uh, quality out of your, your raw images, you, you do want to take a look and, and just see what you're, you're missing, I guess, uh, and what they're doing. And the other thing is uh, for for the, the the folks like the Nikons of the world that that own the hardware and and the software, they can time together for things like capture in or this remote capture and tethered capture and that sort of thing. I know Aperture lets you do that, and you can do it in Lightroom by doing the hot folder thing. But to have it tied directly into the OS and have the the software itself actually show the information that's on the back of the LCD of the camera, I think is something at least right now that only the, the hardware manufacturers can do. Yeah, yeah it would too, be I mean, interesting. Again, sort of it's it's it kind of you, you tend to have the the hardware manufacturer will generally have the first leg up on any of this, and then later you'll see the capabilities showing up in the third party applications. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, this this other piece of news it, it's huge. Uh, and Aaron, thanks for, for finding this. This is, I'm still trying to get my brain around this. So Time Life and Getty Images are joining forces or joined forces to provide instant access to millions of photographs at the low low price of zero. So, <laughs> so Alex, what what does this mean? I mean, is this? <laughs> I know it it's only the the low res web versions, but you know I was reading through the article that that we'll link to in the show notes, and it it basically said yeah it's low resolution, and the guy that was writing the article brought up the fact that does this cheapen the original photography now that you can get basically the image for free? Well, I think that I think that what happened was is that someone at Time and Getty had had a lunch with uh, Larry Lessig. And uh, and we're and we're fed some Kool Aid, and uh, and then suddenly their eyes got big and wide, and they said we could give content away. Uh, no, I I think that really uh, this is uh, this is a great idea. I, I believe I think that's going to be uh, people are going to be upset. Photographers will be upset. They're going to be proprietary. But remember, most of these photographs you didn't take these <laughs> as, as a photographer. If you're listening to this, it's not like you took well the, some of the them picture. Did. <laughs> Somebody did, but the thing is, is that we're not talking about where you make money with your photography. In my opinion, where you make money with your photography is when you're using it for commercial use. And this is a, it's not licensed for commercial use, and b, it's too small to be used for most things that you would that you would use it for. And so, uh, I mean, it, it's the the images are fairly compressed. If you look at them, they are um, they're fairly compressed. They're they're very small. You couldn't really print these. Uh, it says print. You know, there's a print button on them. Uh, but you know they're not. This is really great for school, <laughs> for a school report. You're not going to put this on the wall. Uh, it's about I, my guess is I don't have the exact um, size, but it looks like it's like 480 by 360 or something. I mean, it's not. It's a tiny image. Um, so uh, I, but I, and I think that the people that are going to be using it are bloggers, uh, people who are, uh, you know, doing stuff for their school programs, think, think people who are doing having fun putting stuff together. And I think that. 
I think it's a travesty, <laughs> to be honest with you, that we have so much content that is so locked up with copyright. I know I come from a completely different area. I understand people making money with their with their stuff for a certain period of time, but at some point in time, the person who shot this made money with it. The magazine who used it made money with it. Um, and they're not making any money with it now. The reason they're putting it up for free is because it's not generating any revenue now. It, it's just sitting somewhere, not being used. And it will never generate any the, – the stuff that they're putting up there now will never generate any significant amount of money into the future. Yep. I mean it's, it's never going to turn into, in, into real things. And that's what life, I think, came up – realized is that we're not getting any value out of this with them all just sitting in some vault. So we're going to make them available to people and let people actually express themselves and play with them and 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 do something interesting with them. Um, you know, I think this is this really gets into what Lawrence Lessig's talking about as far as kind of the remix, you know, society is that a lot of this stuff is um, has a, a lot of cultural value and it should be something that people can actually post to and show and so on and so forth uh, without having to feel like they're they're going to be tied up in this you know morass of copyright law. They're basically adding to the long tail of photography. Steve, do you you know you're you're the, you're one of these guys that would presumably have their work out there available for free? How do you feel about the whole thing? Yeah. Well, I, I don't quite feel the same as Alex. As a matter of fact, I, I feel very differently from Alex. I mean, we don't really know how this is all going to shake down. But, you know, the, the big companies like Getty and, and, and uh, Time Life, I mean, they, they have uh, – you know, we've seen what's happening in media today. And things are shifting over. And this free model uh, is, is partly uh, a reason for the demise of stuff that's out there because, you know, again, it's that – that idea that um, you know, uh, if you can get stuff for free, why would you pay for it? Um, the fact is that billions of dollars is being pumped into the web in terms of advertising and so on. And I think there there is a value to these images that people will will pay for. Um, Vince Lafaray, and we can we can um, you know put his views out there in terms of uh, what he said on the subject. And I, I really respect what what he. Uh, what he says, because he seems to be a bit of a futurist for photographers. And, uh, you know, the idea that uh, maybe uh, photographers themselves could, could um, you know, with an iTunes model, for example, uh, make a, a few a few cents from from people out there for for that follow them that want to see their latest work. I mean, there's there's all kinds of possibilities in terms of um, you know making money as as a content provider that. When something like this happens, um, you, you, it tends to kind of uh, uh, blow that idea away, and, and I think ultimately hurt hurt everybody. Um, but anyway, I, it's it's we don't know how it's all going to shake down. I think a lot of the imagery, images are available out there in the public domain, and the fact is that bloggers, um, you know, many of whom make some money every month through advertising will be able to use this and you know how do you differentiate uh, uh, you know a commercial from non-commercial it's it's not being policed it's it's I, I'm not so sure this is the right thing to do well I really think that what I my guess is part of what Getty's doing is I mean Getty has really locked up an enormous amount of the of this market by through the purchase of iStock photo which is you know what everyone who doesn't Everyone who's not a large ad agency just uses iStock that I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, we, we have a big account there. And, and we don't um, generally consider uh, – we don't even think about going somewhere else. If we can't find an iStock, we just, real, we just usually assume we're going to have to shoot it ourselves. And so um, the, 
because the pricing model for us is, you know, for the other services is unworkable, you know, for the kind of budgets that we work inside of oftentimes. So the, um, so Getty's already locked that up. By doing this, they, they're sucking a lot more of the oxygen out of the system. I mean, I think from a pure business point of view, uh, that's part of what's, you know, what's actually happening here is that they're making sure that you know, everything from free all the way up to the more expensive stuff that they represent um, you know, is something that they're going to you know, have, a, have a finger in and, uh, and make it very difficult for you know, a lot of other competition. And so I hope that other people find other ways to compete with it. But I, I also think that, you know, once again, I think that when we look at the photos, my guess is, and I could be wrong, but when we look at the photos that we see for free on the Life um, website, the photographers for these photos, I'm guessing, have been paid. I mean, this when you look, Alex, Alex, when you look into the future, though, I mean, you know, the money that that was needed to produce this images with the best and most talented people out there that were able to to achieve the images they did because they were supported financially. And I think what's happening now is that, you know, the, the top of the top is having a hard time finding a way to to do these these kinds of stories and projects and you know in investigative journalism I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there but the really good content i mean where is it going to come from who's going to support it who's going to pay for it i mean this is this is one of the big uh, you know future problems uh, that that might well, arise I guess, I guess what i would say is that it, 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 my uh, my opinion about this is that is that number one is everything that we see on this life thing the the, the photographers were still paid for it i mean they were paid to shoot these photog- these these photos i mean that's how life acquired them um, number two is if anyone wants to use them for a magazine you know if they want to put them at people magazine or us or or any other magazine they're still gonna have to pay for the print quality of this this is a yeah. highly compressed small image so it's not well, don't don't you think though alex that um you know the the print model is sort of sort of going away and you know it won't be as important to have high resolution uh files well i think uh, that i think that this gets back to the uh this gets back to the argument that we've had over the last i mean the, the discussion we've had over the last two or two or three weeks of that you know, photographers have to think about the whole picture of what they of what they're providing, uh, and 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 I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's, it's the reality of what we're moving into is that it's not going to be enough to um, just be a photographer for a lot of people. If you are if you are well connected and the best of the best, like top point oh one percent. Uh, you can t- you can continue to do whatever you're going to do. You know, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that that's going to be a continuing business model that's going to work for you. If you're not in that in that realm, um, you're going to need to make sure that you have a lot of ways that you, you're going to have to be creative. You know, and I I, I have people friends who are who are not the the flashy folks. In fact, we're going to bring one of them on who are, who are making good money shooting photos. Um, I mean, you know, they're, they're um, you know, now they're not necessarily doing photojournalism, which I think is going to be something that's going to be harder to do. Uh, but they are, you know, they're doing, you know, events and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think, but that's, that's also where the bulk, I think people who make money doing photography, the bulk are shooting events. I mean, I, I don't know oh. if, if you guys disagree, but I think that that's always yeah. been, that's been the case for a long time. Not, I, not yeah. yeah. I know. think too, though. Just and I don't want to don't want to talk about this all show, but I mean, we're talking about a type of work that is sort of more than uh, a commodity. Uh, it's something that is important to the democracy to be able to sort of see what's going on in the world and. Uh, when companies like this, big companies say, you know, this stuff is free, it gets harder for, for photographers wanting to kind of 
obviously survive, but also contribute to the, you know, academic pool of information out there and, and, and checks and balances in society to be able to do their work when, you know, it's not valued as such, uh, at least, you know, on the internet, which is where all the money's going. So, in a way, I, I think it's really dangerous when huge corporations, you know, do this and, 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 and it makes it harder for anybody else to kind of say, hey, look, this is, this is worthwhile. This, this, is, this costs money. And, and, you know, people are just not going to go to the free. I mean, yeah. we can't afford not to. Well, so, I think that the culture. I think that culturally, though, I think that they that, that, that once again, this stuff is important, and I think that it's important that people are able to actually use it. And I think the the issue right now is one of the big things that this does is it breaks down one of the glass ceilings for people who are building blogs and web, you know, and web and so on and so forth of being able to, uh, you know, get a hold of this kind of stuff so that they, you know, it's not just uh, a a area that. Big companies like Life or or New York Times or whatever had access to. These are photos now that you know that a lot of other people are going to be able to have access to and 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 to talk about and to co- comment on. Um, and I do think that there you know that it does produce some some new challenges. And I think that uh, you know and and I think that we can talk about whether it should happen or shouldn't happen. Um, but I think that the reality is this is the direction it's going to continue to go, whether we whether we agree with it or not. Um, you know this is uh, you know the. There's, you know, you're going. People are going to have to figure out creative business models to uh, if this is the area yeah. that they're working. Yeah, and, and that just yeah, a last, gonna, last gonna, thing on. Go, go ahead, Steve, because oh. we got we got to wrap it and keep no, moving. Just, you know, we got to wrap it up. No, the the thing that I remember uh, Vince Lafore saying saying was, you know, this sort of iTunes model of you know having photographers, for example, and and many of them have their blogs and they have their followers and they're starting to make money and that's one way to do it. Um, but maybe there is a way for photographers to be encouraged to continue doing their work through uh, the democracy of the internet and little contributions here and there. But when everything is free, it, it makes it hard to ask for even a little uh, at that time. But anyway, go ahead, Fred. No, no, I was just going to say we need to take a quick second to nod to our sponsor. And I know, Alex, you want to talk about who our, our wonderful people are <laughs> that, <laughs> that are making This Week in Photography possible. <laughs> yeah, I want to thank Drobo, of course. Uh, and Fred's, you know, avoiding, you know, talking about Drobo because he, work, he works there. Yes. So, um, but uh, we we love Drobo. I think we're I think we're all Drobotized at this point. And um, and the uh, you know Drobo, of course, is an intelligent automated storage device. Uh, it's it's basically you know it gives you the power of a RAID without having all the complexity. You can you can pop uh, different size and different brand uh, drives in. Uh, you can change them as you're working. Uh, and it's it's really easy, especially when you're dealing with people like photographers who have huge libraries and growing libraries and changing libraries uh, to have something that is um, that is robust and uh, and very um, expandable safe uh, you know those are the things that are uh, and just easy to use you don't have to be an engineer you don't have to be in IT to figure out how to use this thing um, so it is uh, uh, Drobo of course is uh, uh, something that we use we have I think uh, we should own stock in Drobo for the number of Drobos we have here in the office, so um, we're very happy with them. And uh, if you want to get fifty dollars off uh, the Drobo of your choice, you can go to drobo.com/twip. That's drobo.com/twip, and you can get fifty dollars off uh, the Drobo, any Drobo that you want to get. Yeah. Now, Alex, how many are you up to now at uh, at Pixelcore? I think we only have eight of them, or something like that. Really? I thought you had like eighty. <laughs> well, we had we had lots of them, but we what one of the things we do with uh, large. Uh, 
projects is that we actually give the clients we put every we we just a, the, the, it's turned into a quite a thing where clients kind of really enjoy getting it is we put all their stuff on a drobo and we deliver the drobo to them you know we have some we have some projects where it's four terabytes of information and um and the dro- and the clients love the fact that bundled with you know their project is a drobo so we've our our cash has gone down a little bit because uh, we've been using them as uh, as client gifts as part of our project. So anyone listening, you know, if you hire us for a big project, you know, uh, that's what that's part of what we what we provide. That's part of our service. That's that's your new Bernoulli drive, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's it, the thing is, is that <laughs> we we do the best we can, so no one comes back and says we lost all the data. Can you find it? And we're kind of like we gave it to you on a Drobo. How you know how you know you must have lost the entire drive. So uh, so anyway. Uh, well, speak, speaking of things that uh, that Alex has to spend money on, uh, I know there, there's a, another item that we want to talk about in the news that's on the Twip radar. It's the uh, this time lapse garden camera for 159 bucks. That's what I'm going to spend money on. I'm buying that thing. I'm sorry, I gotta I gotta I'm get buying. that. This is awesome. <laughs> I, this is I'm so glad I saw this in the show notes because I, I saw it on on a blog I follow somewhere in the last week and I forgot about it. But um, you, you want to talk cool. about it a little just, bit, Ron? What is it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, so a, awesome. it's a dedicated uh, camera, time lapse camera that's designed to be weatherproof. It's being marketed as as the garden camera for people that stick it out in their garden and, and set it running, uh, and they can watch how their garden grows over a period of time. It it takes uh, time lapse photos and internally builds them into uh, a video, twelve eighty by ten twenty four, so pretty high resolution. Um, it's got a nice close-up lens. It, it can focus as close as 20 inches away, I think. Um, you know, there's a 2-gigabit drive inside of it, and uh, it runs on just AA batteries. So you can buy this little thing and you know, st- stick it in the garden and watch your garden grow. But I think there's a whole bunch of other places you could you know, deal with as, as well. You know? And, and it's, uh, it's $159, so it's at a price point where it's, it's kind of worth getting it just to play with as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Alex, you could use one of these on one of those fancy, fancy location shoots you do in Tokyo, can you? It was I was looking at that. I, I I will say that it would be great if if the resolution was a little higher, but uh, I paid three hundred if the resolution was higher. Uh, but the but I'm um, but I think this is great a great start. You know, I could imagine hooking a couple of these to um, some Drobos. I'm not Drobos, but some um, uh, Dr- Jobies. You know, the uh, uh, Gorilla Pod. Oh yeah, yeah, those gorilla little. Pod. Because one of, the, one of the things that I was trying to figure out when we start doing our shoots, one of the things we wanted to do is start like every time we do a setup and a breakdown for our shoots is to is to do a time lapse of of all this stuff from a couple different angles where we could edit, go around. The nice thing about the higher resolution, even though we're not going to put that up on the web or 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 anything like that, it allows you to actually zoom in on the plate. You know, that's one of the things that we've been doing with some of the time lapse that we've been doing because we've been doing it at a full like eight megapixels. Yeah, um, with this with the little Rico that I have, uh, and what's great is that it turns out that a lot of the action happened over in the lower right corner, where we can zoom over there and still have a lot of resolution to work with. So that's why the resolution is great. Um, I think I'm going to get one of these and and uh, play with it. So we'll 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 give you a report back because um, I hope you can override the the auto nighttime off because if your sets are dark, yeah, be curious to know whether it stays awake. I mean, yeah. time lapse is really hypnotic when you see, and when I when I see any kind of time lapse stuff, I I'm just captivated by it. I think partly because, like photography, you know, the human eye can't see what happens at a thousandth of a second when you yeah. freeze something, and we also can't sort of see what time lapse does, and it's just amazing to watch. I mean, maybe we'll get tired I, of it. I, 
I've seen I've seen some great time lapse videos that somebody shot of uh, snails crawling across some log in the backyard or something, and it's just it's hilarious to see these little snails zipping along like race cars. Yeah, well, and, and stuff and like that is just the, fascinating. Did you see the uh, video that's been floating around with the someone taking a? I, I think it was a tilt shift, or it was a had a really really short depth of field. That's tough series. Yep. And and it looks it, they shot reality with the time lapse, and it totally looks yeah. like it's stop stop motion. Yeah, you that's know, that, of, that's of, using those the the tilt shift lenses to to give that really shallow depth of field that's somewhere out on the horizon or somewhere in the in the image itself. And those what are those, those lenses? You can do that. You could sort of do that with a lens baby, I guess, if you put it on a on a five D Mark II. But uh, right. but the regular right. lenses are like what three grand or something to do that, something like that. And you know, one of the things that is. Uh, one of the things that's important is about this is that uh, the issue that you get into is uh, with time lapse, and you, if you use it with your SLR, is the thing to remember is that when you shoot a time lapse, you're often shooting two or three or four thousand photos uh, or more, ten thousand photos maybe. Uh, remember that the SLRs, if you're if you're getting excited about this, because you can get a controller, you can get an external controller, hook it to your SLR, turn it on, and, and you have it firing away. But the current SLRs that lift a mirror. That mirror is only specced to, to be lifted, uh, you know, 150 to 300,000 times. So it doesn't take very many time. It takes a long time to shoot that many photos. You'll yeah. run out of your body before you run out of, generally, most people will run out of their body before they can get a new one before they run out of, um, of mirror lifts, so to speak. Uh, but, um, but the, uh, but if you do a lot of time lapse, you'll run through that much faster. And so that's one of the, the things you got to be careful of doing it with your SLR. Yeah. One of, so, one of the more ex- exciting projects that I've been aware of is the great photographer James Baylog, who's working with National Geographic um, and doing time lapse in the Arctic of the ice melting. And it's a really interesting project. Um, I met uh, one of his team members at Macworld. Maybe we'll we'll get him on the show and uh, and talk about that because it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So the other thing is, uh, it, 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 I'm sorry, could you, who, who was it? Was that Ron? Sorry, it was me. I was just okay. kicking in that um, the the time lapse um, tilt shift Alex was referring to. They were a pick a few weeks ago. It's Keith Lauditz series, uh, the bathtub series. Oh. We'll put another link in the show notes. Those things are absolute work, works of art, believe me. Yeah. Well, it's just other things that people need to experiment with. Now we got f-stop, shutter speed, HDR, time lapse, multiple exposure, all this stuff that we can play with. Uh, but you can buy none of the gear for this stuff at uh, at Ritz Camera coming <laughs> up in, in <laughs> April. <laughs> on April what? April four? I guess you could buy it all because they're having liquidation sales starting on April four. So Ritz Camera before was declaring bankruptcy. Now they're just saying uh, we're, we're done. done. We're done. Yep, fold in. It's three hundred of their stores. It's not the whole chain. How big is the chain? Friends. I'm not sure, but I, I looked at. There's a PDF list that we can put in the show notes. I looked to see whether our local one, which, to be perfectly honest, I never put in, but our local one here in Lynchburg, Virginia, is not uh, not closing, but the one an hour away and a couple more in the state are. So, well, a lot of these things, you know, they this this worked for a while, but the the, the issue I think that you get into when you're in a retail store, and I think this is what's ki- we're watching retail stores. Uh, the big, the largest independent bookstore in San Francisco is finishing s- selling not what's on the shelves, but the shelves themselves this week. 
Oh wow! And um, uh, so Stacy's is is done, and um, and and you know Virgin across the street, you know, is closed, and the Ritz I think is closing. You know, that's right up the street from us. So we're seeing a lot of this in downtown San Francisco. And one of the problems uh, I ran into it yesterday. I had to buy this little converter box uh, for our HD camera, and the the challenge that a lot of these retailers have is the only thing I need them for is to supply something that day. If they don't have it in stock, uh, when I walk into the store, I'm just going to order it on Amazon mm-hmm. or I'm going to order it online because it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be just as fast as that at that point. Um, and so I called around and I had to find someone who had it in stock where they were. And, if, and the problem is that now you have to carry an enormous amount in stock, which makes it really expensive because people don't buy it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the, the they're in this catch 22 that they, they, ha- they would the only way to survive. You can't have a little shop. You can't tell people anymore. We'll order it and have it to you in two days. Because I can do that myself. Yep. You know, I don't have to come back to the store yeah. and do that. You know, and that's I, I think, think that's what's, what's- what what the listeners really want to know about this Ritz thing is, can I buy a D seven hundred for fifty bucks? <laughs> yeah, and vultures, vultures. Like, I know, but it's true. That's what or your case, know, in that, your case, Steve, a D three X for exactly two thousand. I'll go seventy five. I'll go seventy five. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The uh, one of the speaking of what Alex was talking about, how you how we have come to use these brick and mortar retailers. There's this iPhone application. I don't want to talk about iPhone too much, but there's a uh, there's an application called Snaptel uh, on the iPhone where that I use all the time. I go into a, a Barnes and Noble, and using this app, I take a picture of a book cover. And it will look it up on on Amazon and any other no- number of online retailers and tell me what that book should really be selling for. I can even buy it at the mo- you know right there from the you iPhone. Know, Amazon Amazon's own uh, own application on the iPhone does the same thing. Oh, does it? I didn't know I did that. You not only can you take pictures of books, but you can take pictures. I took a picture of, of uh, someone's camera, actually. I just took a photo of it, and you could upload it. And someone in India figured out that that was a, you know, it was a Sony something or other and uh, told me where to order it on You're Amazon. You're kidding. How quick How quick does that happen? About 15 minutes. Oh, look at yeah. that. <laughs> so, so the, you know, it's like... I have to admit that I walk through a lot of stores and I just take photos of what I'm interested in. And, and it, it, the worst part is it's not about money for me. It's mostly about I don't want to carry it around. Well, I just want, you know, if I, I know that if I, if I order it online, it'll show up at my house in a box. Yeah, because you could shop from wherever you happen to be in the world now, right? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, that's why I do it. Uh, otherwise, go- otherwise what? I have to deal with customs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all that. Uh, Google and Street View. Now, this, 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 this story... I'm not sure how, how people can, you know, justify not or justify being angry about photos being taken from a public place. So I definitely want to talk about this for a couple minutes and get your you guys perspective on it. So basically, the story is uh, in in uh, overseas in the UK, uh, a group of angry villagers ran off the Google Street View car because it was heading down their street to take pictures of their homes from the street, which is legal. <laughs> you really you really do get get the, a mental picture of the, know, Frankenstein. I'm yeah. not a monster. 1823. And, and, and torches. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Google, I am not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, where do you, where do you fall on that, Aaron? I mean, do you think do you think it makes sense for for these people to have the right to say get off my street, don't take pictures of my house cuz then people will come burgle me. Yeah, or is it just? I suppose. I mean, a gated community, for instance, would exist for that purpose in a lot of ways. But I don't know. I I just found the whole image amusing. The you know, kind of 
flaming pitchfork standing around the car. Yeah. You know, get out of here kind of approach, which <laughs> first but, I've heard of that. You know, the, the Google car, the, the gated community, presumably the Google street car, street view car would not be able to get in the gate. Right. So it would sure, be, be private. Community. Yeah. yeah. As one of the comments on that story or one of the commenters mentioned, um, the fact that this happened now has gone around the world and everybody knows that community now because of the story. <laughs> So maybe mission not accomplished there. <laughs> exactly. Like now, we all know that, there, just in case anyone's wondering, there are a lot of expensive houses that evidently are easy to break into uh, in this community. It's part of it. <laughs> I want to see the images from the Google car with everybody standing around it. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, if I was Google, I would just, I would just delete them. Delete the whole thing. I just you, it just there's no map to that area anymore. Yeah. You know, if, if if you don't want us to shoot, we won't. We won't shoot. We'll just remove your map from the Google, you know, and you just won't exist, you know, to Google, and and uh, we'll see how that turns out for them. Maybe it might be fine for them. How I mean, are they handling that? I'm sure they have they, they have a way to get, get you if you have for some legitimate reason whether it's paranoia or otherwise that you don't want your home you know in the Google servers. I'm sure do they have some sort of mechanism where you can email them your your yeah. lat long and have them pull it yeah. out? Yep, and it usually happens within hours. Yeah, so well, let me see what the big deal is. It's uh, a lack of education. <laughs> Are you trying I to say ignorance? Ignorance is what you're trying to say, Alex. <laughs> ignorant. They're ignorant. Ignorant. I love an angry mob. I love an angry mob. <laughs> Alex, there is no There's R. There's no R in ignorant. Is ignorant. <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> All right. These people weren't so ignorant. <laughs> They're pitchforks and torches. Uh, let's move on to the picks of the week because I know we got some, some pretty cool stuff in here. And uh, I'm I'm looking at our show notes, and I see a blank in there. So I'm going to start there. Alex, ah! <laughs> ah! I just didn't get it in there. So I have, I do have a I do have a recommendation. Um, so I am getting ready. I'm leaving tomorrow morning for uh, London, and uh, I'll be there for a couple of days. And one of the things that this always brings up is how, how much I hate to go through Heathrow. And uh, I don't have a choice. I have to fly in and out of Heathrow. But one of the big issues that you get into is the the number of bags and the size of the bags and all this other stuff that, that goes through security at Heathrow. Uh, one of the ways that I work around this and one of the things that, I would, that I've kind of learned that I really like around shooting are Scotty vests. Does anyone have a Scotty vest? I do not. You know, no one has a Scotty vest. So I, I, do have one. I have the Twip one. So Scotty vest uh, is a... Uh, it, it, it can be a vest. They have vests, jackets, hoodies, pullovers, shirts, pants, all kinds of other things that have a um, crazy, like crazy number of pockets. So uh, there's just, you know, I have one I think has 40 pockets in it or something like that. More importantly, the, some of the pockets are large enough that I have found that I can carry, you know, there's a lot of weight restrictions oftentimes for flying international. Uh, and so they'll weigh your bag and your bag has to be like 20 pounds or 22 pounds or whatever. And, and you know, I'm carrying gear. Um, and I have found that I can fit about 40 pounds into a, into a Scotty vest of, uh, of a gear, uh, you know, drives and batteries and things like that, 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 you know, I, that way I can pass through the, the process. Uh, it also is just great when you're, so when I'm traveling, a lot of times I'll use these Scotty vests to kind of fill up when I go through security and, you know, they'll, they'll point out the fact that, you know, you got so much stuff there. It, it, it might actually be a, a, you know, you could almost consider that a bag. And then I, then I remind them, but it's not. It's a jacket. <laughs> but but the, the more important question that, that comes up, Alex, is do you look attractive when you're wearing this thing? I think I look pretty attractive. I think <laughs> I look like I'm ready for tech. You know, I, I, I'm tech attractive. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm probably not going to pick up any, any, any hot models with it. Uh, but a lot of the newer ones actually are pretty, pretty cool looking. And um, the, the, the first ones, some of the ones that I have, I think I, I've actually um, 
they look a little big on me right now because I lost 20 pounds. So the one that fit really well for me now, I mean, uh, two months ago, um, it looks pretty baggy now. So um, I'm looking to invest in a new one and I'm, and I'm up on the Scotty vest. I, I have um, both a twip vest uh, that was a test and then also a twit vest um, that I'll probably, one of the two I'll probably take with me. And, um, and but it's great, uh, especially when you're shooting to just have something that's going to have a ton of pockets and a ton of things that you're going to put on. Sometimes it, it's not, it, it is, you know, it, as I said, it has a tech coolness to it. Um, uh, but, but what it really is, is super useful. It's, it's kind of an, a nicer, more refined version of the typical photo vest that you'd, you'd see a lot of people using. Yeah. So, well, Alex, I think I, I think what somebody needs to make for you is is either put a, a carrying handle on the vest so you can carry it like a bag, <laughs> <laughs> or else great. a bag that you can wear and pretend as a jacket. Right. <laughs> but that that coolness, that a coolness factor, that that coolness like factor it. is inversely proportional to how big you fill this thing up. The more you put in it, the less cool you look. Yeah. And have you have you ever been Well, know, here's what I do. Here's have, the thing. Here's when, the here's when You the, have 100 pockets. Have you ever sort of where's my passport and it's in the 84th you pocket? You know, a lot of this has to do with pattern pattern based. You know, you have to get the one thing that I'm very uh, good about or or I guess or bad about. I'm, I'm very OCD about is that I tend to store everything that I everything that I'm working with tends to be in the same pocket of the same thing all the time. So it, in any one of my jackets, there's kind of like this is the pocket that this exists in. And, and you will see me kind of freak out if I if I suddenly it's not there because I have no idea where it is after that um, but I'm I usually I'm very very pattern based uh, about how I and that's with my kata bag with my my vest with with any of the gear I tend to be very like everything always goes in the exact same area and it greatly reduces um, that, the amount that is of a big tip I think Alex mm -hmm. really for people out there because yeah. you know a lot of people use vests you want to you want to keep that consistency or else you're going to be you know at airport security well, for 38 minutes you know I got that a from a I actually was talking to someone who does a lot of uh, it, the, what, what really got me thinking about that a long time ago was and it was repeated to me by someone else that one of that's one of the big things about climbers you know guys that are climbing mountains you know, ice climbers and uh, guys that are scaling a lot of stuff they'll tell you that that survival often means that is is good packing skills mm. you know and one of the things is to be pattern oriented and, and i learned that when i was young doing some uh uh climbing that you always have to be, you're not going to be able to look look through something and you're going to need something quickly and you need to be able to reach back and grab it and, and hook it in and i just kind of carry that forward and it's not just with my vest or my jacket it's with you know i can usually you know uh if it's in my bag i know exactly where it is all the time in pockets who I don't rearrange very much. You know, uh, I also use um, little bags. I don't like any cabling like floating around in my in my bag. So it's always in little um, uh, Eagle Eagle Creek makes these little lots of little different size bags. And so everything's kind of in its own little, you know, sorted out and everything else. It's kind of an OCD uh, dream. You should um, you should shoot some video, Alex, of of you I know, packing I know, your I know. vest. I'll shoot a I'll shoot a, vi a, a a video of the vest. Yeah, of you packing the vest. That's what I want to see. Yes, yes. Okay, we'll we'll work on that. Maybe on the trip or uh, or when I get back. Cool. Ron Brinkman, what's your what's your pick of the week? So I think I've done three tripod related. You have. <laughs> so I far. saw this in there. I'm like, this <laughs> man must have a room full of tripods and heads and all this. <laughs> So I'm going to do a fourth tripod-related pick. <laughs> That's or, what you in this do. Case, Finish. Well, you know, <laughs> but all my other ones were sort of little mini tripods. Well, I guess maybe not. But bottom line is, you know, I, I actually have a tripod that I bought 
several years ago, probably five or six years ago, uh, that I, has been great for me. is my main tripod. It's the one I mentioned a while back. It's a, a Manfrotto. Uh, has a cool little horizontal column that you can put on it. But part of getting a tripod is, you know, there's there's the sticks, there's the leg part of it, and then there's the head. Uh, and I don't think I've mentioned the head that I have on my tripod, so that was what I'm going to call out uh, this week. It's the the Acrotech Ultimate Ball Head, and it's a really it's just a sexy piece of hardware. It's uh, this it's designed to be. I mean, I, you've seen different types of ball heads, and, and most of them look the same. But the Acrotech kind of looks different from anything you've ever seen. It's an it's an open ball head in the sense that uh, a lot of the the ball itself is is exposed, and it's just sort of held in place by some minimal framework. And what this means is that it's it's really easy to keep clean. You don't end up with any kind of grit getting in there. Uh, it's it's this extremely precise machined piece of uh, hunk of metal and uh, just very very stable you can put a lot of weight on it uh, it's not not cheap but most good ball heads aren't so I think this one goes for uh, 289 on the Acrotech site uh, so you know yeah if you're if you're really looking to buy yourself a good tripod setup you have to consider the the ball head is part of that, and that's why you can easily end up spending a decent amount of money. But once you've worked with a really good ball head, you just can't go back to something that doesn't have the precision and the and the solidity to it. You know, I feel like I could kind of stand on it if I had to. So, Ron, what are you shooting that you need all this this stability, rigidity, and all that stuff that that you, for all these ball heads and tripods and and heavy duty equipment gear that you have? What do, what's what's your your subject? Uh, it's you know it's whatever you're like i have no subject i just like the gear i just want the tripod as someone who shoots a lot of quick time vrs uh uh this or hdr um things one of my biggest problems is that the ball heads that i have can't handle the weight of the slr on the on the gear and and they and and what happens is, is that the whole thing just bends a little bit I mean, not not the QuickTime VR rig, but the 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 uh, the the head flexes just a little bit. So everything when I go around in a circle, you know, it's not a perfect flat circle because it, the the heads aren't rigid enough. And I'm spending 150 dollars on these heads. Um, well, and that's exactly it. Just, just, you can you can spend you know 150 bucks or or 200 bucks on a an okay head, and there's going to be situations where it just doesn't quite get it for you, and, and then you're going to be annoyed, and then you go off and you spend you know, an extra 50 bucks more on something else, and it's not going to yeah. be the right one, and, and it's, it's the same thing with a tripod. You know, if you just bite the bullet, spend the money up front, you know, I can't point to specific situations where I need a ball head that I can stand on it, but just having something that always works exactly the way you expect it like to, that you can blank. lock down. Yeah, you know, it's it's just one of those things that it's an annoyance that you don't want to have to deal with. And once you've once you've gotten to where you you rely on it just working, then you can't go back to something that doesn't quite work. Yeah, it's like the old I, adage of buy right and buy once and buy right, or buy right buy once, or something like that. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I'm not. I uh, my big <laughs> my big problem is uh, is dealing with video lenses. You know, the heads get you know three hundred dollars oh. is. You can't buy a video, you know, a good video head for that. So, right. you know, these are still, I mean, I know it seems like a lot of money to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, when you're starting to buy, when you start getting into these professional tools, uh, the head that we're looking at purchasing for work here is, and this is just a one one video head is $6,500. And that's like the cheap one. <laughs> yeah. You see, you see a, now we're going to start, really now we start getting into the what, last week's show of the differences between still photography and video again. So there you now, go. There you go. Yeah. You start, you start let's see. Hmm, big... I can spend $300 on a head or $300,000 for a... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, no, that's that's uh, that is point taken. <laughs> well, it's it's become kind of painfully obvious to us that uh, Ron Brinkman does have uh, a tripod problem. So. Fetish. I like we'll yeah, talk, I fetish. We'll talk after the show about some sort of intervention, and maybe I could. Go <laughs> we're gonna make him go out. We're gonna make him go on a big long trip handheld. <laughs> no, <laughs> can't be done. Steve, Steve Simon, what's your pick of the week? Well, I, uh, I chose this beautiful little book, and uh, you know, books are expensive and times are hard, so I don't buy books on impulse very often, but I came across this, the work of Kaylin uh, Davini, and um, she did this beautiful little book called The Day-to-Day Life of Albert Hastings, and uh, maybe, Alex, you can visit him because he lives in the UK, I believe, and it's this simple, beautiful book documenting the life of an older man who lives by himself um, in in his little house in somewhere in England. I'm not sure where exactly its name escapes me, but it's just the photographs are beautiful, very simple, and captioned with, in his own handwriting, um, Mr. Hastings' comments. And it's just such a simple little thing that I think is just pretty pretty amazingly done and it and it's very inspiring i think for photographers to take a look at this work and realize that you know you you probably have a book going on in your own home i mean just documenting the people and places that you know it doesn't have to be exotic and crazy um the images are simple and beautiful and uh i'm hoping that uh, twip listeners will will go to the website and check it out yeah, that reminds me a lot of uh, the the project that Chase Jarvis, a uh, well-known photographer that, uh, photographer that a ton of people know, um, but he's doing an iPhone picture a day, and he shoots you know one shot and posts it online. I don't know if he does it through TwitPic or or whatever, but he shoots a picture of sort of like a blog post. I think it's a great idea to do that. Yeah, this is very different though from that because it concentrates on one man and tells his sort of day-to-day story through a bunch of beautiful little detail images and shots of him. You can tell that a lot of time was spent by the photographer gathering this material. So So Aaron Mailer, what is your what's your pick of the week? Uh, my pick this week's is service. Uh, I may have mentioned it before, but I don't believe I've ever pulled it as a pick uh, here for the show. Um, I do a lot of event photography um, and uh, and other kind of contract photography. And the method I use for selling the prints online uh, for certain groups uh, is a service called Exposure Manager, exposuremanager.com. I found them several years ago when I when I first needed to set up this type of uh, online print sales type of service. And, uh, you know, I looked at a lot of different uh, alternatives and, and Exposure Manager just, just really, really appealed to me. Um, they're, they're a small team uh, of developers that have put it together, uh, but they run it on a pretty large scale. And... Um, they they definitely do cater to, to all levels of photographers, but uh, they they have a particular penchant I think for for serving pro photographers along the way. Um, and the the item I'll point out here, the thing that I really love about their process, um, is that uh, I can shoot an event where I may have hundreds or thousands of photos uh, that need to be offered online for the general public to choose from. And uh, I don't want to do you know a tremendous amount of editing and all that on speculation because you know only a certain percentage of that stuff is ever going to be seen by the by the buyers and so on. Uh, so the beauty is I can do my just very general edits um, to get everything looking the way I want. Upload my entire gallery online to their site, which is where all the sales uh, take place. And uh, it's not until the person actually makes the purchase for the photo and chooses 
chooses the particular formats that I'm going to offer for that, that I get an immediate notice from the system that says, hey, this photo, this photo has been sold to fit these specifications. I then do the edits specifically to that user's uh, request and upload the photo to their service to fulfill the rest of the order. So uh, you're not investing a huge amount of time, you know, just purely on speculation. Um, but uh, they work with a wonderful lab that does uh, does all the printing. I've never once had a complaint from anybody about the quality of an image, uh, the array of options available, everything from metallic prints to, to canvas to, you know, whatever you want to make available. So uh, fantastic site. Um, I could talk about it forever, and, and I won't. I just would point people to ExposureManager.com and say I think it's a really cost-effective, excellent service, and it's uh, served my needs very, very well. Excellent. So quick question on that, uh, uh, Aaron. The What would be the, the advantage of using an application or a service like Exposure Manager over going with something like a... I don't know, like an online lab, like we had the the Pictage guys on, and a couple of weeks we'll have mm-hmm. the Smug Mug guys on. So what 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 does Exposure Manager give that they don't? Because I know with Smug Mug, for example, you can you can specify in your gallery that you set up that images make a pit stop, or you get an email when someone orders something, so you can right. re- retouch it and then upload the retouched version, so that that's what gets re- fulfilled. What's what's different? Sure. There? Um, well, it's going to be similar, I guess, in that regard. I mean, the the fact that you can do the fulfillment now, you don't have to do the fulfillment in, in a in a two step process like that. I mean, mm-hmm. there are certain images that I that make available strictly in a, a given format. So I upload that fulfillment image when I post it online. So if that image is sold, it's just immediately printed and shipped, and all I get is a receipt, you know, an indication that it's been sold and the money deposited. Uh, but for the other images that uh, where they may choose different sizes and shapes and so on and so forth, um, you know. I, I do the editing at that point. And it has been an advantage to me, too, uh, in a couple cases where someone uh, requested a photograph and I knew I had some others that were similar. I could tell by what they were choosing that they there were some other images I had that I had not put online that might have been more appealing to them in that context. I had the opportunity then to offer those images as alternatives to the buyer before the entire process was completed. And, and they actually opted to choose those. So uh, I, I do like the interaction that comes from that yeah. process. Uh, you can do digital sales as well. So you can put items online uh, and sell the digital print. So once it's paid for, you know, they download, uh, you know, the digital image from the fulfillment service. But I guess the other thing too is it separates, these guys focus on the entire, the website delivery, the sales, the handling of the credit cards, you know, that entire process is handled by them. The printing process is done by one or more labs that they have contracts with to fulfill, you know, the particular types of images. I think maybe the metallic prints may go to a different lab than than some of the other prints. And the canvas, I think, certainly goes to another location. Um, but they are, they've chosen labs that are top notch for the particular you know products that they offer. So uh, you know they process the order and pass it on to that lab, and that lab does the printing and the mailing and you know providing it to the customer from there. Very cool. So all around, it's been a fantastic experience. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. So my my quick pick of the week is. Um, something that just showed up in in ups today it's a, a honel photo it's uh, these they call them brilliantly simple light shapers for shoe mount flash and essentially what it is is they give you they send you this little uh speed strap is what they call it that wraps around the the front or the top or around the light of your uh speed light your your flash speed light whatever and they give you all these little, you get all these little accessories that basically act as snoots, barn doors, uh, gobos, all that sort of stuff, just to sort of light or, or restrict and shape the light from your flash. So essentially it gives you a lot of the flexibility of what we come to know is only found in like traditional uh, studio-based systems or flash or battery-powered systems. 
or battery pack powered systems, you know, the, the big barn doors and all that stuff. But it's in this, these little kind of cloth Velcro attach whenever you want and however you want type things. And uh, I just got a bunch of them in. I'm going to play with them. So that is my are, pick. Are, are these, is this the same ones that uh, Scott did a, a little video uh, interview with you at, know uh, I, think, I think they are yeah i'm putting it together now i think these are the same ones i i got turned on to these after interviewing joe mcnally for last week's show and reading his book the hot shoe diaries he talks about these things in the book extensively so i i felt compelled after reading the book to go get them uh they were good i mean you you don't necessarily have to use this level of a, you know, fit and finish kind of poly, polished product to, to shape your light. You could do the same thing with gaffer's tape and cardboard, but these will fold up in your bag and they kind of look good. And, you know, if you're at a wedding or something, you don't want to be whipping out an old piece of Captain Crunch box on your flash and all that. So it's, uh, uh, I think they're pretty cool and definitely, definitely check them out. We'll, we'll put the link to these in the show notes. It's uh, they're, they're pretty cold and not that expensive. And because it's a Velcro adhesive system uh, or a, a Velcro mount system, you're not really sticking anything to your flash permanently, which is what I like about them. So, you got to admit the Captain Crunch box has got flair, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it depends on the level of wedding or event you're at. So. Count Chocula. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Cool. So we, uh, I think what we're going to do, we have a we have a winner for our, our complex assignment, which was the, the photo assignment for last week. And since we are planning on launching our blog on Monday... Um, and because we haven't, we're, we're, we're kind of wrestling back and forth on who the winner is going to be for that. We are going to post the winner to the blog, which will give you an incentive to go check out the blog and another and more content for us to post in the blog. So, so make sure you check. By wrestling back and forth. You mean just didn't get our act together. You know, I'm trying to be a marketer <laughs> and spin this stuff. <laughs> Thanks a lot for outing me, Ron Brinkman. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. We're all friends here. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> no, yeah, he's right. We we didn't get well. You know, I looked at a, Aaron and I spent some time and we we went through and and looked at a couple, but we did not get a chance to to give it the the old thorough look through. I, said, a, I sent my choices too. We saw yeah, yours. Yeah, there was some, oh, there's and, a and lot in there. Are in that list. So. Yeah, so we yeah. we need to we need to do it right rather than just closing our eyes and picking one. So we're gonna we're gonna do it right and, and, we'll, and we'll post really the winner. It's kind of, it, it, it's a good point that it's kind of silly to do a pick, yeah, you know, when we're speaking as opposed to doing a pick on the blog where you can actually see the picture anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think it's probably going to be, you know, generally we'll make sure that we put it up on the blog uh, first so that people can see the ones we've picked. Yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. Uh, let's uh, just actually we we need to do listener questions. But before we get to that, I wanted to just give a quick interview or a quick intro to our, our guest, which will insert at this point uh who new was, assignment though by the way do, we, do we show some assignment? complex but we have our new topic do we really want to do one what is it spring oh go ahead tell us about it yep the the new assignment topic for the next four weeks we do a month at a time uh is is spring um but once again we always like the word to have multiple meanings so you know is that the season it, it certainly seems like it could be uh is it an action that you're capturing in some way is it literally a coiled up slinky metal thing uh water coming out of the ground whatever you know those are all possibilities so your interpretation of spring there's certainly ones beyond the stupid little examples i just gave uh and so for the next four weeks uh wow us with uh with your interpretation and just just as a little hint we will purposely not look hard at the ones that are too literal so be very creative. Be very creative. So this week's guest is Robert Evans. He is a very prominent wedding photographer located down in the 
in the Los Angeles area. He's done weddings for the likes of Tom and Katie, uh, whatever their last names are now. But he he he, he does those guys. He's, he's the people. He's the guy that that gets the calls first down in Hollywood. And if they can't get him, they go to other people. So he took some time to uh, to sit down and chat with me about his process, some of the projects that he's working on and his marketing methods and all that good stuff. So uh, it's a really insightful, deep interview. Give it a listen. All right, I'm here with uh, a really good friend of mine and also a really good photographer, celebrity photographer, wedding photographer, Robert Evans, located in... Uh, where are you? Where are you located, Robert? Are you in Hollywood? Are you in uh, Century City, Universal City, somewhere down Universal, there? Universal. I'm like on the border, so like literally, I'm like the the four states. I could be West Toluca Lake. I could be Universal City. I could be Studio City, or I could be North Hollywood. So to to anybody that's not from that area, you just you know they're like, okay, whatever. You're from you're in Hollywood. <laughs> to give you a point of reference, I'm walking distance to Universal Studios. Ah, you can see the roller coasters and all that from your. <laughs> not quite, but I know they're up there. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Robert, for uh, for taking the time to speak with me today. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great. So uh, I got a ton of questions for you, some controversial, some, <laughs> some not so controversial. Um, so basically, I wanted to get started. The, the TWIP audience, you know, this is an audience of, of uh, the whole range from from your, your new photographers all the way up through amateurs, advanced amateurs, and, and a lot of pros as well. Uh-huh. And what people typically want to know on the show uh, from people that have made it or are making it in the business is how you got to where you are. So how did you get into photography and specifically wedding photography? Well, to be quite honest, I never wanted to be a wedding <laughs> photographer. Uh, I've been doing photography for uh, just a little over 20 years now. And um, the the short answer to how I got to where I am is a lot of hard work. Um, but if, to back up a little bit, um, I, I had a serious interest in photography from the age, you know, 14-ish. Just taking photos using one of my dad's old Minolta 35mm cameras and took that uh into junior high actually had a junior high school teacher in ninth grade that it was just kind of an odd they didn't really teach it in the school and she decided to teach photography so i took it there really loved it got up into high school took it through high school went to junior college for a little bit i I moved out of the house when i was 19 so i was working full-time going to school full-time and uh one of them had to give so school was obviously the easier one yeah and uh so i quit going to school and I got away from photography for just about a year. Like basically when I quit meant that I didn't have access to the dark room or any of that stuff. And I really missed it. And, uh, really I sold insurance for a while and hated it. And I'm just not a salesperson. And, um, I was, I was strict with myself and I said, you know what, if you're not going to go to school, then you need to decide what you're going to do with your life. And photography is what I fell back on. But, you know, being, uh, born in California or Southern California, I was born in Santa Monica. Um, and grew up here, the question I asked myself at, you know, at 18 or 19 years old was, well, how are you going to become successful or a professional photographer in this town? Everyone's a photographer, like everyone's an actor. Yeah. But it was something that I really was drawn towards. And so one of the first things that I did, uh, I wanted to learn color because they, you know, high school and even the college that I took was all black and white photography. And I wanted to learn to color darkroom. So I got a job at a, at a small lab in Hollywood, which no longer exists, but it was called Wolf Color Lab. 
Mm-hmm. And there I basically processed film, worked the counter, shot copy nags, and printed a little bit. And the, the, the guy, John Wolf, who I worked for, was pretty much an Einstein of the color darkroom. I mean, he did color tests on paper, and he would just pull it out of the machine and look at it. And, you know, it had the filter packs in the enlarger, and he'd add three more magenta and two less cyan. And, I mean, he just had it all in his head, and he was a really great printer. I wouldn't say that I learned to print great, but I did learn enough uh, knowledge of the color darkroom that I took into my career, you know, as a photographer when I was dealing with labs. Would you would you say the the stuff that you learned, so the the fundamentals of printing black and white color, developing slide, all that stuff, does that translate directly over to being a, a, a digital photographer? A little bit. I mean, I think it's good to know the basics, and that's a little bit beyond the basics, but um, it definitely helped with looking at color and knowing what good color and bad color was. Um, digital, I think, is a little bit different. I don't think just because somebody didn't work in a color darkroom or, or black and white, which is probably more realistic today, that they're m- missing out on anything other than the experience. I mean, there's just something about, you know, being in the dark room with other people and having your hands in the chemicals and watching the print come up and, you know, sort of understanding that whole basic element of it, uh, which I know you're accustomed to since, you know, going through the military and and doing all that. Um, So I'm sure you could probably concur. Just, I don't think somebody's technically missing something, but I think the experience, you know, was definitely invaluable. Yeah, something about being deprived of sunlight for hours and hours <laughs> at a time and being uh marinated in fixer right, right. that sort of changes your dna a little bit yeah absolutely so then okay so so that's sort of the basis of stuff so you know fast right. fa- fast forward till to, to today you know we've got these, yeah. these digital slrs that can do these amazing things um yeah i hear a lot and i wanted to i wanted to pose this this question to you i hear a lot that uh, a lot of amateurs and uh even some pros uh say that it's not the cam or it's not the photographer anymore it's the camera that's doing all the work and that the photographer is just along for the ride How, where do you fall in that argument um i don't think so i think it's definitely the photographer there's uh two unique things that i've always said about a photographer that separate us from one another one is how we see and two is our personality mm-hmm. and um how you see something i almost say is basically you know like your fingerprint of photography the way you see it nobody else is going to see it the same exact way and that's one of the things that i love about photography too is that no matter how good you become you're not going to master every aspect of photography so i may be one of the better wedding photographers, but it doesn't mean that I'm a great architectural photographer or a great sports photographer or, you know, and I've done uh, both those things, but I would not put myself or compare myself with some of the best that do that. So so then, so then Robert, speaking about gear specifically, um, you know, what about your gear? You know, there's always the, the controversy back and forth of Canon versus Nikon versus Sony versus whatever. You know, where where do you fall in it and what kind of what kind of gear do you shoot with and why? I'm a Canon shooter and I shoot specifically Canon because that's where I started. I mentioned that I uh, shot my father's Minolta's mm-hmm. uh, when I first started. And when I 
I think when the EOS cameras, when Canon introduced their EOS systems, I had a photographer friend who had one, and I shot with it, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing camera. Yeah. You know, it definitely walk circles around my Minolta. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, that was, I bought a 35 mil. I think I bought the AE2 or the, the one that, well, the eye for the eye focus or one of the, I forget which one that was, but, um, and I just fell in love with the whole system, you know, the lenses, the, the way it, you know, the autofocus and how all that worked and just sort of, it was very simple to use in my opinion. Um, I don't think it really matters, uh, what camera you shoot, whether you're an Nikon or a Canon or a Sony, uh, I think it's that you have the passion and the love for it. But I mean, I've stayed with Canon. I love what, you know, all the different, ca- I've shot almost every single one of their digital cameras that have come out since the beginning, you know, from the, what was it? The 30 D on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, not sure. There's the 30, the 60, the 10, the, you know, and on and on. And I've, you know, basically after each one came out, I upgraded and got the new one, sold the old one or kept one of them as my backup and just, you know, kept, you know, pushing forward with all the new cameras. Yeah. And, um, just really, really, really love the the Canon technology and the system, you know, behind it. So we we know in in photography, especially in the the wedding photography or any any genre of photography where you're trying to make money from your work, um, there's always two halves, right? So there's the art and being the artisan, and then there's the the uh, marketing and the business person part of it. So on the business side of things, how does how does Robert Evans Photography find clients? How do people find out about you? How do you market yourself? Um, well, I've been, like I said, I've been doing it for 20 years, um, quickly to finish my beginning. But basically, I worked for three studios and then started my business January of 94. And I basically marketed myself through networking, networking with people in the business, uh, such as florists and coordinators and Mm -hmm. anybody, you know, venues, that type of thing. That's sort of like how I was taught and trained. And And I've heard that. I've heard people say that, you know, network with the other the other people that are working the wedding. But what does that mean? I mean, does that mean just walk up to him and say, hey, here's here's my card. Use me. Or what do you do? That means really developing a relationship, I think. And you can't. Yes, it's nice to, you know, if you work at a venue and you've never worked there, well, yes, go up and introduce yourself to the, you know, the banquet captain or, you know, whoever's in charge of the facility and say, hey, this is your place is beautiful. I love you. I love you. I love I love working here. And uh, but offer, you know, what I found is offer to help them sell their product without anything in return. So in other words, I can give you a direct example. I mean, people always ask me, um, you know, how I got some of the bigger celebrity weddings that I've done. Yeah. And uh, going back to Brad and Jen, I can tell you it's a direct correlation to giving a florist photographs, you know, prior to that happening. And so how that worked was uh, I had just worked with this nice Beverly Hills florist i it was a backyard beverly hills wedding it was nice but it wasn't you know super extravagant but the flowers were particularly beautiful and i i was taught you know early on you know we would that's how we would market take pictures of flowers and the decor and the detail and give them to the florist and now this was back when i was shooting film so i had to you know once I got the proofs back, I had to crop the negatives and yeah. order an eight by 10 and send it to the lab and then put my name on them and get them to the florist. It wasn't as easy as today where you could just email a file to someone. Right. But anyway, so I sent them to this particular florist 
And when he received the images, he called me and he said, Robert, he said, not only are these are the most amazing detail photos that I've ever received from someone, but I didn't even ask for these. And he's like, I can't tell you how many times I've asked photographers for photos and I don't get them. And basically from that moment on, I started getting referrals from him. And it wasn't until several years later that he was already a part of that job and uh, knew that they were basically doing like an audition, I guess, for photographers, if you will. And he's like, well, I know a great photographer. And he's like, fine, have him submit his work. And I submitted my work and got the job. Wow. So that type is, well, that's what I'm talking about. You know, help other people sell themselves without sort of expecting anything in return. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the business today is like, you know, what I get out of it? What do I get out of it? And you can't have that attitude. You really need to, you know, what can I do to help you succeed? So whether you're giving the the venue pictures or you're offering to shoot something, you know, we're photographers and we have, you know, cameras and there's a lot that we can do, even for charity. Like I do charity stuff and I go shoot for free and just give of my time because I can. You don't necessarily have to give money. You can offer your services and do what you love to do. Yeah. So then, okay, If so you're, you're, the word of mouth part of it and then working with the other vendors to, to get the referrals from them, that's a piece of it. But what about, are you doing any online marketing, like email campaigns or Google AdWords or anything like that? I've never done any Google AdWords. Um, I have a I'm actually uh, just starting to do more of like, you know, the SEO, the site optimization and right. and a little bit of that stuff. I actually have a very dear friend uh, who's actually a member uh, on our site on photographymentor.com. And that's what she does. And, and she just loves the site. So she's like kind of offered to help us. And, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, how all that stuff that goes into it. Um, so we've done a little bit of that. Um, I've done magazine, a little magazine advertising in the past. Um, I think maybe it's good in the beginning, but as you know, people know it's expensive. Yeah. So I've always tried to get free magazine advertisement, meaning, you know, again, offering to magazines to shoot editorial or, uh, just giving them submitting images to use for other articles that they write and then getting your credit on it. And, you know, that type of thing, anything that you can do to get your name out there, without necessarily having to pay for it. And, and sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit of creativity, but it's sort of recognizing the need and then filling it. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that was a good segue because you mentioned photographymentor.com. Um, and, and two things, I want to get into what that is or what that, that site that you built is. And, and also, uh, I've noticed, and we talked about this a while ago, and I wanted to touch on it before, uh, again, uh, the growing sort of divergence or... Uh, diversification is probably a better word uh, of wedding photographers doing other things besides j- wedding photography. So, right. and so is the photographymentor.com site an example of that? And, and why have you gone in that direction instead of staying, you know, shooting strict weddings? I started Photography Mentor for the simple reason that I wanted to give back. And it all started, uh, with myself doing my own DVD, you know, I saw these other photographers making their own DVDs and, and, uh, I looked at some of them and, and the, the, maybe the content was good, but the production value was in my mind on a lot of them, you know, could use some work. And I was like, well, I could do better than that. And, uh, I'm fortunate enough to, uh, be in a building with a production company and, uh, one of the three partners of the company is really into photography. So I, I went to Kurt and I said, Hey, I want to do a DVD 
and what do you think? Could we collaborate on this? Could we work together? And, and he's like, oh, absolutely. Because he was over every day on my side of the building, you know, asking me questions about photography. And so anyway, that's how it started. So we did a DVD. Um, my first DVD is called Mentor Wanted, where I basically took, uh, I found a girl who posted um, on the Pictage forum that said Mentor Wanted, hence the title of the DVD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I wrote her back and I said, well, what do you want to learn? And actually without the idea of doing the DVD, we had some other ideas for DVDs. And she said, well, and I, I, I want to learn this, this, and this. And she said, I, I, shot, I showed somebody my honeymoon photos and then they asked me to do their wedding. And a year and a half later, I'm shooting 30 weddings and, and going to school still feeling like I need to learn photography. Wow. And I noticed that she lived close so I said, well, why don't you come to the studio and let's sit down and talk. So she came to the studio and we filmed, you know, we, I had the idea this would be a cool DVD. We filmed that meeting. And again, fast forward, she came with me to one of my weddings and shot third because I wanted to see what she saw. And then I went with her to two of her weddings and mentored her right on the spot and shot second for her. And we filmed the whole process several interviews there's some post you know photoshop you know all that stuff my philosophy uh what i speak on a lot called time to plan the wedding day meaning giving yourself three hours prior to the wedding to shoot which means getting the couple to see each other which means getting everyone to be on time but you know having time to actually uh shoot what you want and not shoot what you get yeah Shoot what, so, shoot what you want and not shoot what, shoot you, get. what you get. Exactly. And to actually have fun at it. So after doing the DVD, of course, it's quite a lot of work to put it all together and get it out and published. And, and uh, you know, it's over two hours. It's a great DVD. But to answer your question, you know, Kurt and I were talking and we were like, well, it'd be cool if we could do this, but we could get the, the content out quicker and right away. And also I knew I don't want... I didn't want the site to be just about me. I, I know there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of great teachers, especially I've been going to WPPI for 15 years and seeing different people talk. And there's always some little, even if you don't necessarily agree 100% with the person or you might think that they're better than you're better than they are or whatever, there was always some little bit of information that I gleaned from everybody. Mm-hmm. And you add it to what you do and you know, especially today, of course, you know, there's many, many great photographers out there. And so I wanted the site, you know, I wanted to go shoot and work with all those people and let them teach. And we would just film in sort of shoot a documentary style and put it on the website for people to be able to just go to one place and watch and learn. So that's how the school, we have two sides of the site. That's how the school at Photography Mentor was born, which is basically content that we go out and we travel all over the place and do interviews with people and shoot with them. And, uh, you know, so from one, you know, person, you might get 10 or so clips plus an interview, and then people can go on and watch it. When we put up brand new content each week, um, we started actually, when we had the idea of the site, we knew we were, that we should develop content and get some content instead of just launching a site. So we shot for close to a year before we actually launched the site. The site's a year old this February. And we have, so we, you know, we had about a year's worth of content so we can put up new stuff every Friday and we continue to shoot and we have probably six or seven months of shot content already. And, you know, we just keep going out there and working with different people and shooting. Wow. And then back in August, we launched the playground side of the site, which is more of the social networking part of it uh, to sort of combine the two. And, and the social, the playground is free. Uh, the school does cost a little money to watch the video that 
that we produce, but we work very hard at that. And on the playground, I say it's sort of, you know, elements of the big three, Facebook, Flickr, and YouTube. So you can post your images up there. People can comment on them and critique them. You can vote on them. Uh, you can post videos up there, you know, photography related. So any educational thing that you shoot or you might see, uh, you can create groups to network. Uh, we have, of course, forums and we have chat rooms. And one of the big things that we've been doing are our live chats. So we yeah, try seen, to do I've them. seen one of those with, uh, with, uh, or a couple of them. Did you do one with Dane Sanders a while yeah, we back? Did one with Dane and, uh, right before WPPI, I did all women. So I had, I had Mirko, I had, uh, Jasmine Starr, Amber Holitz, and who am I leaving out? There's one more. Um, well, Sarah, we haven't done Sarah France, but she's coming up. We had to push her back, but basically it's a two hour chat that the photographer is live, you write your questions in and the photographer answers them. So you're watching them live in their home or wherever they happen to be doing, and then they're answering your questions. So, you know, we've done really well. We've, you know, done them with tons of other people, Gary Fong and all these other people. But, um, you know, like the most recent one, I think the last one we did was Jasmine and she had close to 400 people in her room, Wow. you know, sending in questions. So, so this side, I, there's a lot to it. I would just say, go check it out for yourself. It's free to create a, an account on the playground. You just go there, you know, create a screen name and off you go. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty deep site. And I, I go there uh, relatively often, not as much as I'd like to go. But uh, yeah, it's pretty deep. You, and you've got, I've seen it from, from launch to now and it, it's just unfolding. <laughs> you know, yeah, in yeah. terms of in terms of growth so yeah definitely check it out well and one of the best things which we didn't even touch on you know i mentioned the school but uh just at this last wppi uh we launched the school in high def powered by smug mug so now every single we've been smart enough in every video and every all the educational content that we shoot for the school we've shot it all in high def we just haven't been able to show it in high def and now uh with smug mug it's all in high def, which means that you can watch the clips. Uh, it's scalable, too. So the neat thing is if you have a 30-inch Mac screen, you can watch it in high def at 30 inches. If you have a laptop, you can watch it on your laptop in high def at 10 inches. You can watch it at mid-def. It'll also, if you go there on your iPod or your iPhone, uh, it recognizes it, and you can play the clips right on your iPod or your iPhone, which That's we... Great. That was a little cool little bonus. The Smug Mug is doing some amazing stuff. So, all right. So that brings me to my sort of controversial part of this interview. <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this. So over the past couple of months or in even longer, even since when I was working at Pictage, you know, uh -huh. uh, a long time ago, there's been that sort of uh, rivalry between the two companies, between Pictage and between Smug Mug. Um, only in the last couple of months has it seemed to heat have heated up to fever pitch now. So right. Pictage has launched their Pictage Lite service, which seems to compete with what the market that Smug Mug has been playing in. And Smug Mug has launched their Smug Mug Pro service, which competes with Pictage. Right. So, and I know you, we met when, when I was working at, at Pictage. So where do you fall in that whole, that whole controversy, especially considering that you're using Smug Mug for the video for, for the stuff that you're doing? 
Right. Well, the way we got hooked up with Smug Mug, of course, was we, uh, which we can go into more, we posted a little short video called Engage that we shot uh, exclusively on the new Canon 5D Mark IIs. Mm-hmm. And we chose Smug Mug as the place to host it in high def uh, for two major reasons. Uh, one, it was the less expensive option. And two, it was the higher quality option. We compared it to some of the other sites and uh, by far it looked amazing. So we chose to embed it there and quickly after we put it up on Smug Mug, they contacted us and said, this video, this you know, film's amazing and who are you guys? And, and then they did a little research and saw that you know, we were the, Kurt and I were the co-founders of Photography Mentor and they said, we love what you're doing. We'd love to work with you. How about we host all your videos on high, in high def for a photography mentor? And of course, we were like, <laughs> really? Yeah. We were like, okay, that sounds like a win-win-win for all of us. And yeah. uh, so that's kind of how the relationship with SmugMug started. And so right now, what we're doing is just we're hosting the videos uh, on SmugMug for photography mentor and high def. And I am a Pictage client, so. You know, who knows and if what the future holds, but uh, for now, I'm happy with, you know, what's going on at Pictage. And, and uh, I think even Smug Mug will tell you themselves. They're definitely moving in that direction. Uh, they're not quite ready, but I know that's what they're gearing up for. But I will say, uh, watching them, how they've worked with us and the work that they do and, and just the company, that they're going to move quick. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see, you know, what their pro solution is when it's finally complete. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be interesting. I mean, overall, I think, you know, the the drama <laughs> never ceases, as we both know, in the, in the wedding photographer industry. But uh, ultimately, for the photographers that are using these services, I think the benefit is just plain old capitalism competition, you know, yeah. should breed better services on both sides. So and choice. Yeah, so absolutely. Always good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, for the longest time, I mean, as you know, Pictage was kind of really the only major player. And I think now, you know, like you said, both of them moving into each other's markets is only going to make each company get better. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, hopefully things will get cheaper for users as as the, uh, the, the price wars wage on and it'll all be good. Right, right. So then, um, you know, another question. So you brought up the Engage video, the, the project that you guys, the short film that you shot in Miami. Right. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fusion of, uh, or the sort of migration, I don't know, however you want to pose it, of right. wedding photography into video, especially with the advent and the introduction of the new 5D Mark II. You know, right. being able to shoot that, that really, really stunningly high quality video. Uh, do you think, I think from the people that I've spoken to over the last several months, they, they fall in generally one of two camps. Either they say, I'm a photographer. Um, like, you know, for example, Gene Higa, I was talking to him. I interviewed him uh, on the last whip. Right. And he said, I'm a photographer. I have no interest in moving into the video world. I'm a photographer and I'm going to stay that way and get good at that or, you know, remain good at that. Because right. uh, he's an excellent, amazing photographer already. He doesn't want to move into doing another art form and then there's the photographers who say you know hey the more tools the better i can do all this great stuff now i'm going to add video to my toolbox and offer that to my clients as well what's what's the right answer i think people have to do what's right for them but i can tell you what my answer is is i'm jumping into video two feet first and swimming fast (laughs) 
You're gonna mar- I, gonna mar- I, marinate in the video. Huh? <laughs> I absolutely love it, and and you know I was excited, you know, waiting for that camera to come. Of course, Nikon came out with theirs first, and because I'm not a Nikon shooter, and then Canon came out, uh, you know, with the 5D Mark II, and I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. I mean, Kurt and I actually planned shooting engage uh before we had the cameras we we basically how we got the first editions of them or the first first that came out is we went basically to a little camera store and ordered them and we were four and five on the waiting list they said they were going to get 12 we planned we shot engage in miami we planned the whole thing and uh without having the cameras and it came down to getting the cameras five days before we left for Miami and they only ended up getting five cameras and I said we were four and five on the list so we basically just snuck in there by the skin of our teeth and uh, went to Miami shot engaged literally in two days uh, with the help of only people from our website so we had photographymentor.com students who you know lived locally in the area who wanted to watch us shoot it and help and it was just a, a really fun experience and you know basically you know i got thrown in feet first but you're you're using an instrument your camera that you're familiar with with a, a little bit of new element to it but all with all the same lenses and you know when i saw the result and of course i have a great partner in kurt uh and he's in, you know with his 15ish years in film and television that's his background he's never really been in, in this world as far as you know wedding videographers all he's done is network television yeah and uh so he has some amazing talent but you know just wanted to pat my own self on the back after you know some of the things that i got in the shots and you know i was a little nervous i mean i have to say like okay you know i felt like i was doing something that i had never done before but really it's still photography that just kind of like moves a little bit and you have to learn a little bit of technology but i think fusion is going to be the next biggest thing to film taking you know digital taking over film what does this mean for for the wedding videographers though because it it seems like there's been this peaceful coexistence yin yang relationship between the (laughs) still photographer and the videographer that are working the event you know and the 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 still photographer may even use the videographer's lights for the first dance and all that but now that the still photographer is going to be doing his own thing and shooting his own video, what does that do to that relationship? Right. Well, here's my take on it. Let me, before I touch on the wedding, the wedding part of it, I think fusion is going to be huge no matter what you shoot, especially if you're a fine art, uh, you know, photographer, you could do that, but lifestyle portraiture, baby portraiture. I have a feeling it's going to be huge in the senior market and, and, you know, engagement shoots and, and all that stuff. Now going back to weddings, I don't think that my goal doing this is not necessarily to become the wedding videographer. Shooting video with your camera, you know, is really shooting moments or little vignettes of things that are happening that along with your stills that you can uh, create even a more dynamic slideshow than what photographers are doing right now. Now, my opinion of what, how it's going to affect the videographer, I'm not obviously looking to you know put a videographer out of business or say i'm your 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 videographer um but where i think it will affect the videographer in a sense is the couple that's on the fence about video 
and you know a photographer would say, oh, well, hey, maybe I can I can offer you, or I'll shoot a fusion video for you with you know vignettes of your day and stills, and cut it into you know a seven to ten minute ten minute recap that I'm going to put on an iPod and give it to you at the end of the day that you can walk around and show your family or friends. As a you know maybe in that it's in the price range, you know, depending on the photographer, maybe. A thousand to three thousand dollars, you know, because I think to do fusion right, you need a second person, uh, you know, shooting second, so to speak, but you know, maybe only shooting video, and you're working together with that person, and you know, as a photographer, you're sort of now the art director or the director, and you're directing what happens along with your videographer. Um, and yes, there's some shots that you, you can shoot together and then there's moments that you're going to capture separately. But unlike the photographer, the traditional photographer videographer relationship where you're both working independently of each other, you're going to, as a photographer shooting fusion, you're going to be working together with someone to where you both have the same common goal to create, you know, an emotional creative product for your bride and groom. Yeah. So that's where I see it making a dent is to the person who's on the fence about video and the photographer says, well, I can create this cool fusion video for you. Here's what I've done in the past. Look. And they're like, all right, for 2000, 2500, 3000, whatever, I'd rather do this. Cause I really don't want a videographer at my wedding anyway, as opposed to hiring a videographer, maybe spending three, four, five, six, you know, or more depending on obviously your market. Right now where I see the photographer and the videographer getting together instead of them, you know, like, oh, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think videographers and photographers really should team up. And because uh, a photographer, like the one thing, I mean, we're actually doing a whole tour around Fusion and teaching it and how to think about it and shoot it and edit it and, you know, really to teach photographers that aspect of it and to sort of open their eyes to sort of this new school of thought. But photographers, you know, everybody wants to outsource everything. So to have editing now, you know, video editing, you know, like, Oh great. What is this? Do I have to learn this whole new thing? Yeah. It's and a whole I'm, new set of tools. It's yeah. Like and photog- it's, it's a Photoshop and premiere and final or final cut now. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And I'm fortunate enough to, to have teamed up with Kurt who he and himself, you know, has an amazing experience and background. Um, and so the two of us combined together, yeah, I think are an amazing force and I feel super fortunate, you know, to have, have this relationship with him. And, but that's what I think other photographers need to do. They need to find that videographer in their neighborhood or that they work with. And, you know, they can still shoot fusion, but maybe the videographer edits it for them if they don't want to do it. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, I think there's obviously a way that they, you know, people can work together and, Instead of like, you know, trying like to, but on the flip side of that too, if you think about it, you know, right now we're in the position of, you know, oh, okay, the photographer now can shoot video and the videographer is threatened. But I know, you know, technology and with the red camera and other cameras coming out from, right. from red, there's also the flip side of that where a videographer could just go out, shoot the whole thing with video, pull stills from it, make an album and and be done. So, I mean, yeah. there's, there's both sides of that aisle. I personally think, and this is, this is not really to insult videographers, but it's going to sound like that. I personally think you're going to find, uh, photo- more photographers that will make better, better filmmakers or video artists than you will find videographers that make better photographers. And basically 
you know, maybe this be a little time off, but kind of the thing that I've said is I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the, the title photographer and videographer kind of get blurred and we're all going to become visual artists. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we all are right now. I think, you know, I think what I'm going to do is ask the people that are editing this down to cue in some ebony and ivory music in the background. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can all just get along. Yeah, we all just get along. <laughs> Don't get that started in L.A. again. Bro. <laughs> all right. So on the Engage video, where can where can people go to, to check that video out? You can go to engagingfilms.com. And you can watch, it's about a, a six-minute video uh, before the credits. And it's basically, again, the fusion of uh, video and stills. Uh, Kurt and I both shot video. He shot more so than I did. And I shot stills, as well as there was additional stills uh, shot. Carlos Baez was there and, and helped out tremendously and did a, some amazing stills in it. So you see all that uh, you know, edited together between the video and the still images that we shot in the shoot. And, you know, obviously the title kind of tells you what it is, but it's about a couple getting engaged. Yeah. And and you personally, if people want to find out more about a photography mentor or Robert Evans in general, or they want you to shoot their wedding, where where should they uh, where should they head over to? My website is robertevans.com. So that's pretty simple. Um, you know, photographymentor.com that's where our educational content content is for photographers and then the other thing that i kind of touched on if you are interested in fusion uh the end of march we kick off a 10 city tour to start uh and you can see the different dates and it's uh photofusiontour.com and that's where you'll find the 10 cities that we're going to it's a two-day workshop uh, where you can kind of get an education. We kept the price point as low as we could. It's going to be four seventy five for two days. And the other cool thing that's going to happen that I don't think anybody knows about, so this will be the first time someone hears it, is that the night before the workshop, um, so let's say the workshop's on Monday or Tuesday, Sunday evening, uh, uh, Smug Mug is going to launch Smug Groups in each city, and it will be the Sunday night or the night before the tour, depending on what the day falls. That will be the first official uh, smug meeting or smug group in each city. Okay, wait a minute. So <laughs> <laughs> this is an exclusive. Apparently, there you go. And this is new. I'm going to have to Twitter this in a second. So what? what is a smug group? Is that... it? It, having again coming from Pictage and right. being involved right. with the right. pugs or the Pictage user groups, right. this, this sounds like that. Is this that, or is this something different? I think very similar. I mean, you know, it's a the brainchild of Jeff Yoakum, and and now he's over at Smug Mug, and um, so yeah, they want to create you know more of a a community you know among all the smuggers, and so. It's you know going to be under the Smug Mug Pro brand. You know they just launched the new brand at WPPI. Uh, but yes, in each city, it's open to any Smug Mug Pro that wants to come out and um, you know meet with other smuggers and you know kind of network in the area and and so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be great. Wow. Okay. And that that's that's is that public? Can I can we talk about that on Twitter yeah. and all that? Yeah. So what's the name of it? Smug Mug Groups. Smug Mug Groups, yeah. Wow. 
Okay, excellent. That's when is it? You said March 10th that's going live? March 10th is the first. Uh, that's where we start the tour is in L.A. And we're going to, I mean, off the top of my head right now, I'm not going to get all 10 cities, but L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Dallas, I think Atlanta, New York, um, nothing, nothing in San Jose, isn't this Smug Mug's headquarters? They're, they're right on, around the corner. They're like come San on, San Francisco's like close <laughs> enough. You guys can drive ten. Wait minutes. a minute, San Jose is larger than San Francisco <laughs> in terms of you know per capita. Come on, but those are you know you can again you can go to uh, <clears throat> photofusiontour.com. It has all the different cities on it, and th- we're probably definitely going to do other cities. But right now it's going to be 50 people. We're going to limit it to 50 people in each city. But for the for the inaugural smug, you know, pro, smug mug pro group meetings, that's open to anybody who wants to come that, you know, first night before. Cool. That's awesome. All right. Well, cool, Robert. Thank you for uh, taking the time to chat with me tonight and divulge all this classified information about <laughs> Smug Mug that I am now typing up tweets and I'm going to hit return on her as soon as, as soon as I stop recording this interview. Uh, but thanks a lot, Robert. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. And it's uh, awesome to be here and looking forward to working with you soon. I know, yeah. Hopefully, we'll be able to get out there and shoot soon once I get my uh, my little site kicked off the ground. But that's another story entirely. So, okay. Cool. All right, Robert. Thanks a lot. Fred. That was Robert Evans. Uh, he's a wedding photographer down in the Los Angeles area. And we'll put links in the show notes, too, where you can find out more about Robert. Follow him on Twitter. Check out his blog. Check out his site. Check out the uh, interesting things they're doing, like he mentioned with with photo with Fusion again, that that whole video and still photography thing that keeps coming up over and over again. And I have a feeling that it's going to continue to keep coming up. And with that, let's just jump in and take a quick listener question. Uh, you want to, Aaron, you want to take this one? Uh, there's a really good question in here on IPTC. I think we should definitely chat about. Uh, sure. Um, this was submitted by uh, listener Royce. And uh, he says, hi, fellows. I was wondering what are the differences, pros and cons on the two metadata types, IPTC and EXIF? Um, <clears throat> tell you the truth, um, <laughs> I had to do a little research on this myself in the process. Uh, I've had the same question um, a couple of times I've been using it. Um, IPTC uh, is actually uh, it's the International Press Telecommunications Council. It's a descriptive format for information with press photography that actually dates back to the 70s. Um, and that format was essentially kind of brought forward into the digital photography realm. And in a lot of cases, is is uh, the desktop software like Aperture, Lightroom, and other applications, uh, Photoshop, they all honor those fields um, as well. The kind of competitor to it, so to speak, or the thing that overlaps is EXIF, um, and that's the data that your camera writes. And virtually all the digital cameras out there write uh, you know, the majority of the EXIF standard. And that would have the more technical information in it for sure, such as your uh, Aperture and you know all the settings of your camera, model your camera, so on and so forth. Those are embedded in the JPEGs and TIFFs. Um, there's a lot of overlap uh, as well. Some of the fields are in common, but the IPTC fields are the ones that are going to go more into uh, kind of the informational realm about the photography, the photographer, the location, things like that, a little more so than the EXIF. So my personal rule of thumb is, you know, the EXIF data carries everything automatically from the camera that I care about. And the other fields that I tend to use, caption and title and location and other general stuff, is also encapsulated by EXIF. So I put everything kind of in the EXIF realm, and I only kind of creep into the IPTC fields if I want to add some data that one of those fields represents. 
and I want to be completely standard about the process. Yeah. So, um, I mean, again, that's kind of my approach. So, uh, do you guys have other opinions on that as well? Um, you know, Steve, Steve, do you Steve make- what are you doing, Steve? Are you do you just do copyright stamps in your images, or do you put other stuff in there? Well, I try and be as complete with my captions, uh, copyrights, but beyond that, uh, I'm not doing much more. I think uh, someday, if I, you know, when I get an assistant that could help, I I might get more thorough in terms of the metadata that I store with every photo. But uh, yeah, for me, it's uh, it's it's not quite as important. I just do the basics and move on. Like, are you are you writing the caption and inserting a number of keywords? And if so, how many how many keywords do you stick in there? Normally. Yeah, you know, I, I, I generally do it on a per assignment basis. Um, I don't really or haven't really had the time to go back through the archive and keyword the way maybe I would like to. So, I, you know, it may just be uh, six or seven keywords that I can put in. Um, you know, my, my, my archive is, is big, but it's certainly uh, containable and I could find, this, find what I need to, to find. And, uh, but that's, that's something that I, I ultimately would like to be more organized with. Very cool. I would mention, too, along the way that uh, between the two standards, um, all the different applications are probably going to treat them a little bit differently. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be standardized, but there's always a little bit of vari- variability. Sometimes you'll find that if you load a photo into a certain application and save it back out, some of the exit fields get modified slightly or even stripped and dropped, which is the most irritating part. And my gut feeling, I, I don't have absolute proof of this, but I'm going to go out on a limb. My gut feeling is that the exit fields are probably going to be supported more thoroughly and more often than the IPTC fields. So if the exif fields that exist in there cover what you need, I'd say put it there because if you run your photos through multiple apps, um, they're probably going to be picked up there more so than if they're in the IPTC fields. Does that make sense? That that makes sense to me. Ron Brinkman, are you still there? I'm still here. <laughs> Aren't you the authority on this stuff? How come you are piping up? Uh, you know, it was interesting because when that question came up, I was sort of like, oh, I'd have to do some research on that. So I'm actually <laughs> kind of glad that uh, that Aaron did the work for me. <laughs> Yeah, I probably I, said it all wrong, but hey. Yeah. No, if if you did, I'm sure we'll get a couple of comments. At I, what what email address can they reach us at, Aaron? Uh, well, for the moment, it is twippodcast at gmail.com, and that will continue to work. But I, I will say that as soon as the new blog goes live, uh, we actually have nice forms for both uh, feedback and listener question submissions, and we'd really encourage people to use those. It, it, it makes our process a whole lot easier, too, because the, everything comes in in a consistent form, and it's easier for us to go through and add things to the show notes and to the show. So the the email address will be on the blog you'll be able to use it again it's twitpodcast at gmail.com but really whenever possible please use the blog and the form because uh, it'll just make the whole process smoother excellent well cool well uh, I think I think we've beat these topics to death so where where can people find you Steve Simon if they want to follow you and stalk you and Google Google Street View you uh, they could uh, Street View me at stevesimonphoto.com <laughs> And Ron Brinkman, where can people street view you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ron Brinkman. And there's a new place where you can find me online, too. Where's that? It is www.twiplog.com. Yes. You may have heard of it. Yes. Very good. <laughs> and you'll be able to find Steve Simon there as well. Yes, yes. And on Twitter, slash Steve Simon. Yeah. How are your, how are your, uh, how's your flock doing over there, Steve? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, last I looked, uh, everybody's fine. I have like 3,000 of them. Wow. My God. I know. I know. So it's pretty exciting. Um, I try and feed them uh, regularly. Maybe, uh, you know, keep them a little bit hungry, but feed them regularly. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, don't definitely don't overfeed. We always say that. <laughs> Do not overfeed. 
Steve and his Tamagotchi, uh, you know, followers there. Yeah, totally. Aaron Mailer, where where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, my blog, halfpress.com, uh, also on Twiplog soon. And, uh, of course, on the Twitters is uh, halfpress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S. Yeah. And same for me, Frederick Van Johnson. If you want to find me, just go to twiplog.com and all of the various places where you can contact me will be listed there. And I'm also on the Twitter. I hate saying Twitters and I said it. Twitter at uh, Frederick Van. Coming up next week on This Week in Photography will be Smug Mug, uh, Chief Marketing Officer, former Chief Marketing Officer of Pictage, uh, Jeff Yoakum. He will be on the show to sort of talk to, uh, not as a counter to the uh, to the interview that I did with Jason Kiefer, the CEO of Pictage, but more of a, hey, they're doing that, and this is what we're doing, and this is where we're going with Smug Mug. So that's, uh, that's coming up next week on this Fukin Photography, and I think that's it. It's time to uh, take that lens cap off. 